Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, Two Types of People. By way of introduction, today I want to revisit a fundamental subject that many Christians don't fully realize, but something that we very much need to keep in mind as believers. And it's simply this. There are but two types of people in the world at any given time, those who are regenerated and those who are yet unregenerate. Said again, there are but two types of people in the world, those who are regenerated and those who are not regenerated. We refer to those as unregenerates or reprobates. A regenerated person, defining our terms, is someone who is born again or someone who is, as we would say in 2022 America, someone who is saved. And so the saved person, the born-again person, the regenerated person, the Bible also refers to him as quickened, and it refers to him as someone who has been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. This is a person who has eternal life, and they know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saved. Eternal life is in them, and they will be with God in glory regardless of whatever happens to them. Because they know the Lord, and they've been taught to know Him. He has taken away their sins. They are to Him a people. He is to them a God. And the Bible says all of those statements that I just repeated back to you in various places. Those are scriptural statements regarding this type of person. Conversely, unregenerate people are those who are not born again, people who are yet in their sins. To be very clear... Some people who are not yet born again will one day be quickened of God. They will be translated. They will be regenerated. Just as you were quickened of God, just as I was quickened of God, there will be a time in their life when God saves them and he reveals himself to them. And we'll consider a few helpful examples of that in the Bible today. Now, in light of that fact that there are only two types of people, those who are regenerated and those who are not regenerated, what we do with that information greatly depends on our theological point of view. Now, hold on to that thought for the very end of the broadcast today. After we elaborate on this subject and these two types of people, I think it will be very clear what our understanding of that needs to be, what you and I ought to do as followers of Christ as it relates to people who are yet unregenerate. What can we do in such a situation? What do we need to keep in mind? So hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it before we close out today's radio program. There are four basic points that I want to speak to today on the broadcast. Number one, we want to consider the quickened or regenerated person. Number two, we want to consider the unregenerate person with some examples of that. Number three, we want to look at how this condition affects the reception of the gospel. And then lastly, point number four, we want to look at how this information changes and affects how we view this second group of people, this unregenerated group of people that live in the world even today. First of all, as we think about the quickened person, again, this person is referred to as someone who has been quickened, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. These people are referred to as those who have been regenerated, 
Titus chapter 3. They're referred to as someone who has been saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. They're, according to Colossians, people who have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. But probably the most common term for them in the world is those who are born again. Now, people often say in today's time that they're a born-again Christian, and what they mean by that is they made a decision at one point in their life to accept the Lord, and they believe when they made that decision they were born again, and that's why the label born-again Christian is one that's applied to them. Well, I hope that I'm a Christian, and I certainly believe that I'm a person who's been born again, But understand that your being a Christian is a result of you being born again, rather than how many people understand it today, that you being born again is a result of you becoming a Christian. You see, life precedes action, and just as it is in the physical realm, one must be given life before they can do anything physical, so must we be given spiritual life before we can do anything spiritual. And so I hope you're a Christian, and I hope you're born again, but please understand that you being a Christian is because you were born again. You were not born again because you became a Christian. That's to put the cart before the horse, as it were, theologically. The quickened or regenerated, translated or born-again person is what we would refer to as a recipient of grace. In other words, God's grace has moved upon them. They're a person that now is a possessor of grace. They've been saved by grace, and God has given them grace for grace, as we read in the Gospel of John. Now, as we said, the most popular term for someone who is saved or regenerated or quickened in American Christendom is the term born again. And this comes from the book of John chapter 3. Now, as you know in the story, just to put it very briefly, a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, This man comes to Jesus, and unlike some of the people that we'll consider in a moment, he says, look, we know you've come from God. Nicodemus and some of his friends among the rulers of the Jews recognized that Jesus was indeed the Christ. They knew that he came from God. That's a statement of divinity, because no one could do the things that Christ did except God be with him. There were people in Jesus' day, as we'll consider in a minute, who said, if you're really the Christ, how long do you make us doubt? Just tell us plainly. And Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you believe not because you're not of my sheep. Nicodemus could see and perceive things about Christ. There was a difference in Nicodemus. There was some sort of an inward change in him that allowed him to perceive that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Jesus replied, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't change the subject. Nicodemus says, I know you've come from God. And Jesus replies, unless a man's born again, he can't see the things of the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't perceive that I am come from God. You can't perceive my kingdom. You can't see my identity unless you have been born again, born from above, born of God. Now, this confuses Nicodemus, as it confuses a lot of people today. And he asks, can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? He didn't understand this concept of the new birth. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Jesus is saying there is there's an additional birth other than flesh birth. And you could be born of the flesh a thousand times. It would only be flesh birth. Now, you can only be born of the flesh once, but hypothetically, if you were to be born of the flesh a thousand times, it would be a thousand flesh births. It would not be a spiritual birth. This birth is one from a different source. It's to be born of God. And that's exactly what Nicodemus is being told by Jesus. But then Jesus says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. How is it that a man or a woman or a child is born of the Spirit of God? Well, Jesus answers that in John chapter 3 and verse 8. One of the most under-preached verses in all of Christian history. The wind bloweth where it listeth, Jesus says. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Jesus says that everyone who is born of the Spirit is born of the Spirit the same way, and he compares the moving of the Holy Spirit in the new birth to the blowing of the wind in creation. There are so many things that this clarifies for us. None of us control the wind. You and I can't go outside and speak the wind in a certain direction. Contrary to popular opinion among some Christian circles, we don't have power over the storms. We can't go out and rebuke the wind like Jesus rebuked the wind and change the course of nature and storms in the world. We simply lack that power and that ability. The new birth is much like the blowing of the wind. It's out of our hands. It's out of our control. It's a force greater than us, but a force that we can also observe. You and I can't predict when the Holy Spirit is going to quicken someone because this is according to the mind of the Spirit. God does this when it is his time according to his sovereign will. So then, according to this passage, how is someone born again? Because that's our subject today, two types of people, those who are born again and those who are not. Those who are born again are born again according to the sovereign will of God, the direct, immediate operation of God on their soul. This is something that God himself does alone, just like the wind blowing through the trees, so does the Holy Spirit move upon God's covenant people. In Ephesians 2, 1, God quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, and so to be regenerated is to be quickened, is to be born again. And as we read down in verse 8 of this same chapter, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There, the new birth is described as being saved, being the workmanship of Christ created, in Christ Jesus, or as Second Corinthians would say, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. We have been made a new creation, as it were, as born-again people. God, in His creative power, has changed us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins. He resurrected us. He quickened us together with Christ, and we are then His workmanship, just like that word workmanship finds its place as it relates to things that are built, things that are crafted, works of art, sculptures. When a master craftsman makes something, that is his workmanship, and we are God's workmanship if we are saved by him. He has done that, and we are the passive recipients of such. Now, there are some examples of people being born again. 
We know that one of the two thieves that were crucified with Christ is reviling Jesus one moment and another moment worshiping him and pleading with him. And Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. What happened to that thief? Well, he was born again. We know Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. One moment he's a hater of Christ. The next minute he's a worshiper of Christ. What happened to Saul of Tarsus? He was born of the Spirit of God. And there's another of the three major examples I like to use in the New Testament. John the Baptist, as he was an unborn baby, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Ghost, even in his mother's womb. And because of that, he leaps for joy at the salutation of the mother of Christ as she enters the room. Those are examples of people before and after the new birth, results of the new birth, very explicit examples. But we also have examples of other people in the Bible that are clearly born of the Spirit. Peter had confessed that Christ is the Son of God, and Jesus tells him that flesh and blood had not revealed Christ unto him, but God the Father in heaven. Peter was a regenerated person when he confessed Christ in Matthew 16. You have Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, an obviously regenerated person who's praying to God, and God hears his prayer and sends for the apostle Peter to come and preach to him and to baptize him. You have Lydia, the seller of purple, whose heart God opened. And so, to be very plain with you, the people who receive the message of the gospel and love the Lord in Scripture, that attests to the fact that they're born again. I know there are a few examples of people such as Simon Magus or Judas Iscariot that hung around with the disciples and believe some things as a historic fact, you might say, about the Lord Jesus, but Scripture indicates that they were unregenerate people. That's very true. But the people who truly believed it and rejoiced in it and had joy over it and loved the Lord Jesus Christ, we have great reason to believe from the testimony of Scripture that those people are quickened of God, and as they left this world, they went to be with Him in glory. Number two, the unregenerated person or the unregenerate is yet a natural man. So the first type of person, the quickened person, the regenerated person, he's a recipient of grace. He's born again. He's saved. He's the workmanship of God. And this is not according to his works, but according to the grace of God that was given to him. The unregenerated person or the unregenerate is a natural man, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And as a natural man, he only has the nature of Adam in Ephesians chapter 2. And we love to quote this verse here on words of grace. We were, prior to salvation, by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Before you and I were born again, we were children of wrath by nature. Now, so what is a natural man? Well, he's a child of wrath by nature. And so the natural man is what we were. We received not the things of the Spirit of God, the foolishness unto us. There's no fear of God before our eyes. We don't seek God. We don't understand God. All of that you can find in the book of Romans chapter 3. Possessing only the nature of Adam, natural men, people prior to salvation, prior to being born of the Spirit, only possess the nature of sin. That's the only nature that they have. Now, after the new birth you and I have two natures. We have the nature of the flesh and the nature of the Spirit, and these are at constant warfare within us. But prior to the new birth, that's the only nature that a natural man has. It's a very desperate, wicked, sinful condition. Now, in Scripture, people in this condition are referred to by a number of titles. One common Old Testament title for this type of person is a son of Belial or Belial. And that's a term for that wicked one in the Old Testament that Paul even uses in his writings to the Corinthians. 
what concord has Christ with Belial or Belial? A son of Belial then would be someone who's effectively a child of that wicked one, not that they're biologically an offspring of Satan, and not that he's begotten them in sort of a spiritual sense, the way born-again people are begotten of God, but he's the chief influence in their life, and because he deceived Eve and tempted Adam to sin in the beginning of time, sin is a byproduct of his influence. All people who are in sin are referred to as being the sons of Satan, as you were children, sons of Belial or Belial. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells a group of Jews that they're of their father, the devil. Now, in John 8, Jesus is speaking to a mixed audience. He usually does. There were disciples of Christ there who were accompanying him, his entourage, as it were. There were people who heard and believed. And Jesus would tell those people that if they continue in his word, then they'll be his disciples. Indeed, they'll know the truth, and the truth shall make them free. But there are also people in the crowd who don't believe in Jesus. And so they argue with Jesus. And it helps us to understand you have these different types of people here before Christ in this interaction in John chapter 8. Well, these people that begin arguing with him, they debate him. They say they've never been in bondage because they're Abraham's seed, which is not factually accurate. They were in bondage several times. They were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were in bondage at times, some of them, to Philistines. They were in bondage to the Assyrians. They were in bondage to the Babylonians. They were in bondage to in a sense, at least under the authority of the Medo-Persians, and then in bondage again to the Greeks. And at this very present time, they didn't have their national sovereignty or autonomy as a people, but they were under Roman dominion. So these people had been in bondage many times. In the course of debating them, Jesus very plainly says, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? In John eight forty three, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. What does Jesus say to these people? That they're of their father, the devil. And to get a little ahead of ourselves, if they don't believe the words of Jesus, the perfect Son of God, incarnate preaching to them, What makes you think they're going to hear me, a fallen, failed, fickle human being trying to preach the Word of God? No, they don't believe what Jesus says because they are yet of their father, the devil. Quoting a passage we've already made mention of from John chapter 10, as Jesus speaks to unbelieving Jews in John chapter 10, as he was at the temple in Jerusalem at Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication as it's referred to here, There are Jews that come to him, and they say, If you're really the Christ, tell us plainly, how long do you make us doubt? And Jesus says, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all." and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, Jesus plainly tells them that you don't believe because you don't belong to me. You're not of my sheep. You're unregenerates, and you're natural men. 
when he says, I and my father are one, they actually take up stones to stone him, just like they did in John chapter 8. They wanted to execute him for saying this, because to say, I and my father are one, is to say that he is of the same substance as the fathers we recently talked about here, consubstantial with the father, not one iota of difference between the father and the son in terms of nature. Now, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are three persons, making one Godhead, co-eternal and co-equal. But to say that he's one with his Father means that he's divine. It means that he's deity. And they attempt to execute him for simply saying that because, as they answer him, you've made yourself equal with God. Well, the fact of the matter was, he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So that was a fitting statement. And Jesus is the only one who could ever have made that statement, and it not be blasphemy, because he is the second person of the Godhead. How about some notable examples of individuals? We looked at some examples of people like the sons of Belial, those who were of their father the devil, and here the people who are not of Jesus' sheep. Well, there's a few examples in Scripture that we could rattle off. You have Pharaoh in the Old Testament, who was obviously a very wicked man. One of the earliest examples is Cain, who slew his brother because he was of that wicked one, according to the book of 1 John. You have Esau, a vile man that Malachi and Romans chapter 9 says is a recipient of divine hatred. Now, that's a subject that's never preached upon in America today, but God hated Esau. He hates the workers of iniquity. God's righteous indignation and hatred towards certain people is a biblical reality, and we like to explain it away in America today, but that's to do great harm to the Word of God. There are people in the world that the Bible says God hates, and rather than explain it away, we should believe it and teach it. And then another example from the New Testament that we might have in mind because of this past week being Easter Sunday is Judas Iscariot. Judas is a person that is referred to as a devil and the son of perdition. There we have another son of statement, like son of Belial or son of the devil. He's the son of perdition. And so he's an unregenerate person, which explains a lot about why he was a thief and why he did the things that he did. Now, number three, this condition affects the reception of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 begins some interesting language regarding how these two types of people receive the same message that we preach as we share the gospel indiscriminately in the world. Now, thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor or the smell of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, listen to this. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. We're a smell, as it were, to those that are saved and a different smell to those that are yet in their sins, them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, we are the savor of life unto life. To a person who is dead in trespasses and in sins, we are the savor of death unto death. To the dead, we have the savor of death. There's hardly a more putrid scent in the world than the smell of death. And to the unregenerate, that's how palatable the gospel message is to them. But to those that are alive in Christ, we are the savor of life unto life. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to smell life? Well, that's the savor, the scent, the aroma that we have to those who are born of the Spirit of God. There's a pleasantness 
to the message that we preach to someone who is born of the Spirit of God. We're the savor of death unto death, or life unto life, as ambassadors and preachers of the Word of God. To put it a little more plainly, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. To those that are yet in their sins, the word of God is foolishness. To those that are saved, well, it's the power of God unto them. And so the condition of what type of person is, either regenerate or unregenerate, affects how they receive the gospel. Now, coming to our final point for today, this changes how we view this second group of people. Because most Christians today think that it's our job to try to get this second group of people moved into the first class of people, which is to say those that are born again. In other words, we want to get them regenerated when they are unregenerate. But as you just saw from those passages, it's foolishness to them. They don't understand. They don't seek God. And what they stand in need of is something greater than we can give them. You and I can't get someone born again no more than we can go outside and cause the wind to blow in the trees. We simply lack the resurrecting power of God. We don't have the power to impact a person's spiritual state. And so understanding that, this changes the way we look at those who are unregenerated. And so there are three points that I want to give you along these lines just briefly. Those who are not yet regenerated because they are dead in sins, because they are still yet sons of Belial, they're not quickened if they are of the Lord's sheep at all, they are yet natural men who receive not the things of the Spirit of God because it's foolishness unto them, they're actually the wolf that Jesus warned against. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 7 and verse 15, What we do with the wolf is avoid him and flee from him, rather than try to bring him in and change him, and if he's sitting here long enough, maybe we'll have an impact on him. He needs something we don't have that we can't give him, and he's actually a danger to the flock. A wolf, a person who is the natural man, They always end up in positions like Judas Iscariot, where they're either stealing or they're abusing. They're the thief and the robber that kills and steals and destroys, according to John chapter 10. And so what we really need to do to the wolf that comes in among us is drive him away, because there's no way that we can change him. He needs something that we simply can't give him. Number two, we also are to pray that we would be delivered from them. In 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Paul says that we are to pray, actively pray, to have free course with the gospel, but also that in our evangelism that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men because these are the persecutors. These are the wolves. These are the people that cannot be impacted by the gospel. And because of that, when the word is preached to them, they become the angry, raving mob scenes that we so many times saw in the book of Acts. And lastly, as it relates to how we are to deal with this type of person, what we're to, what our public preaching should even be with regards to them, this is from Mark chapter 6 and verse 11. The gospel is preached publicly and indiscriminately. It's 
being so now here on the radio, and it is in many other forms, sometimes in person, sometimes not. But one part of the work of the gospel minister is to publicly testify against the wicked of God's judgment against them. Mark 6.11, Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart thence, listen, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them, For I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, a part of the public preaching ministry of those that preach the gospel is to publicly testify against the wicked that God has judgment reserved for them, and the shaking off the dust of the shoes is to be indicative of that. What I've shared with you on the broadcast today might be new to you, and if it is, I would encourage you to consider what I say. The Lord give thee understanding. Search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.